I gotta tell you, um, I I love being in God's house and among God's people. I do. I didn't always love it as a young kid, given no choice by my parents. But can I tell you, that's the way to parent, right? Um, you need to bring God's people and God's house home with you. That's where the destruction happens when I hear young adults, people my age or younger, saying, ah, we don't make our kids go to church because our, mar- our parents made us go to church and we hate church or did for a long time. That's, that's not usually because your parents made you go to church. It's because they didn't bring church home. It's not because they brought you into a community of people where the gospel of Jesus Christ and grace should have reigned. It's that they didn't bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and that grace back home with them. That's the issue. But I love being here because God does things here that he doesn't do in our lives individually. When we started this morning collectively, I'll just be honest. We had the enthusiasm and energy of a fence post in here. It was dreadful. Dreadful. But Jesus is doing his thing in here right now among us. He's reminding us that regardless of whether your guy won or lost, he's king. He's king. And I want to get some of these um, peripheral things out of the way so that we can listen well to the word that God has for us this morning. I want to give you a quick rundown of who's been president of the United States since I've been alive. Some of you can laugh at that. So I was born into Gerald Ford's world. Poor guy, never had a chance. Jimmy Carter came along after that. Great man, had no idea where he was or what he was doing. Right? Ronald Reagan came next, and then George H.W. Bush, who recently passed away. And then Bill Clinton. First time I was able to vote was during Clinton's election. Then George W. Bush. Then Barack Obama. Then Donald Trump. And now President-elect Joe Biden. And it will keep moving short of Jesus Christ's return. But I'll, I'll tell you this. My job this morning and next always, but specifically around times of tension and when energy is high, is to be both pastor and prophet. To speak words that can calm our hearts and assure us. Now, and I'll be honest, because I, I talk to a lot of you throughout the week individually. There's a lot of you this morning that are disappointed, but there's some of you that are excited. And you're grateful because your guy won. And I would just say this. I would ask you to do this, given the biblical mandate that we have as the people of God, to acknowledge that government as an institution and a domain of human life is one given by God for the sake of order in society and for the care of people. I'd ask you to pray for both the incoming and the outgoing administration over the next couple of months to remind yourselves that these are real people doing real jobs with real families. And I'm going to tell you, if Christ reigns as Lord in your life, you ought to be able to pray just as easily for both. Because you're not looking for a savior out of either one of them. You've already got one. Right? Pray for the incoming and outgoing administrations. And I'll just remind you of this. That presidents are rarely as bad as half the country expects them to be. And never as good as the half that voted for them expect them to be. They can never give you what you most desire. Never. God's not designed them or designed any ruler or dictator to be a savior. 
And I would remind you of, of one other thing and then give you a challenge. Uh, go ahead, if you've got your Bibles, you can be finding 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's where we'll be this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can look it up on your phone or just look along the screens with us. But I would remind you that we live in a time right now, this time has always existed, but 24-hour news cycles and social media has made it seem uh, so much greater than it really is over the last 10 or 12 years, and it's certainly heightened its impact. But we live um, in a place where, where po politics is messy, right? Uh, politics is messy, but the alternative to politics is tyranny. So I'll take politics if given the choice to choose. But I'll just say this, uh, we live in a nation where we have entire industries devoted, I said this some weeks back, to instilling fear in you. They make billions every year, both sides of the political spectrum and all of their outer wings, by instilling fear in you and making you believe, needing you to believe that they are able to offer everything that your heart most yearns for so they can own your allegiance and your vote and your brain. But I'm telling you, that is not who we're called to be as the people of God. Some of you this morning, you're disappointed, and that's okay. Some of you are dismayed and filled with fear. Can I just say prophetically, that's not okay. That's sin. That's sin. Some of you are excited this morning, and that's okay. But you have a, a, a gleeful twinkle of retribution in you from four years ago, and that's not okay. That's sin. We come in here as God's people. We leave here as God's people to carry his kingdom work and his power and his great message out to our neighbors, regardless of who they vote for. So here's my challenge to you this morning. You can take it or leave it, but I can tell you I'm taking it. I want to encourage you to fast from social media the next seven days. To fast from it, to make an intentional decision that when you leave here this morning, you will not look at social media again before you come back in this place. And I would challenge you even to fast from the news. I know for some of you, you're like, yeah, it's a bridge too far there, preacher. Lost your mind. Can I tell you that you're watching the news will affect nothing but your own health? Your rants on social media matter nothing to anyone. No one cares, changes no minds. My concern is that your heart be owned and be affectionate for the only one who's truly worthy of it. And that your mind be clear this week and able to extend grace and peace and be a light. That's my challenge to you. Get off social media for a week and get out of the news for a week. And you know what you'll find? That your life's just fine. And you'll find it next year too. That whoever's elected and whoever's unelected and whoever's reelected as we go along rarely affects your family, your friends, your hobbies. Can't affect your friends if you let it. But let's be God's people. Let's be God's people. Let's jump in now to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at, at an event that I told you last week I think is probably the best known or at least most familiar in the Old Testament and I think most often misunderstood. Most often misunderstood. We're moving now where the people of God, they've, they've cried out to God to give them a king like the other nations had. 
They could never accept the fact that God did not intend them to be like the other nations. And I can tell you this morning, if you feel a little out of balance, you feel a little bit uh, like you're not at home and, and a little bit like an alien, you're supposed to feel that way in a world where sin runs rampant and you've been redeemed by God's grace. This sin-driven world is not your primary home. God will clean it up one day. He's going to perfect it and redeem it. Romans is clear on that. But we live in the fallenness of it right now. And so they cried out, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And God said, no, I am your king. You are my people. You are my nation. They said, but we want it. We want one. We want one. We want one. Anyone ever had kids? Any of you ever noticed what better parents you were before you had children? Like how you'd look around and be like, what wimps? You know, I'd tell my child this, that, or the other. And then you have kids. And they're beautiful and they're amazing and they wear you down over time. We joke about the fact that the first child gets a ton of pictures and the next one gets a good bit and if you keep having them, they get less and less. It's not because you don't care, it's because you don't have the energy to keep taking pictures. You're tired. God finally relents and he says, I'm going to give you a king, but you're not going to like it. Because he's going to tax you. And he's going to take your sons and sweep them into his army for his glory. And we move out of the time of judges into the time of the kings. Along the historical movement of the kingdom of God. Saul comes along and he's not very good from the beginning. But he looked good. He seemed like he'd be a great choice. Often the one that's the right choice is not the one that looks like the right choice to us as human beings. But Saul comes in. And he is more and more of a disaster. And all of a sudden, the people of God, the Israelites, God places them in a narrow sliver of land at the very intersection of the most powerful crossroads of trade and warfare in their day. As a tiny people among giant empires with a tiny sliver of land but so critically placed that they had to remember day in and day out that the only way they could exist was by their reliance on God, not by their own power. And we come to a time this morning in 1 Samuel 17 where the Philistines, the continual enemies of the people of God. Some of you grew up in a town or at a, uh, at a high school that you had a continual enemy, right? You had somebody that anytime that game was played, there was higher attendance than anything else in your town could bring. A president could stop by on a campaign trail and he wouldn't get as many people turn out as if you played that town or that school, right? The Philistines were the arch enemy of the Israelites in their day. The Philistines lived along the western sliver of Israel. They lived along the Mediterranean Sea. They were coastal people, coastal elites. I don't know if you've ever lived on the east or west coast. Sharon and I have. And I can tell you that's a very true thing. Coastal people fancy themselves as smarter, more sophisticated than anyone that lives on the interior. And the further in you go, the dumber they assume you must be living that far from the coast it was the same in young David and King Saul's day here the Philistines were advanced they had a more advanced culture they had more advanced societal structures they had more advanced weaponry and military tactics than Israel did and they'd begun to move on Israel and Israel had come out to meet them in the valley of Elah and they were camped on opposite sides 
of a valley. I think we've got some pictures of this. The valley, you can go there today, you can see the valley where David fought Goliath today. And so the Israelites are camped on one slope and the Philistines are camped on another slope. There's a valley at the bottom and there's a wadi there, a, a dry creek bed that's dry most of the year. And so the Philistines decide to engage in representative warfare if Israel will respond. And this was not uncommon in their day. Ancient armies would meet on the field of battle and they'd say, hey, instead of slaughtering each other, why don't we send out our biggest and our best and they'll fight it out. And whoever wins, wins. And whoever loses then is enslaved by the winners. Now, the losers didn't often accept that. Um, but it was a good idea to start with. And sometimes they did accept it and entered into a treaty and a lot of lives were saved. This was not uncommon, this David and Goliath kind of thing. Any of you seen the movie that came out, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years ago now, Troy? Anybody seen Troy? Three and a half of you and me. All right, um, great movie. You should watch it, great movie. Uh, we see the Greek city-states at the very beginning of Troy lining up to do battle. Um, and the opposing army has quite a large warrior out there what they're engaging in is representative warfare and the greek city-states want achilles achilles their their sharpest warrior not their largest but their best to come fight so they're waiting achilles comes they were engaging in representative warfare and the philistines are separated from israel and israel from the philistines not just by a valley and a wadi but at least on the side of the israelites they were separated from the Philistines by a great chasm of fear. They were paralyzed in fear. They were swamped and overcome by fear. Let's pick it up in verse 4. A champion named Goliath. Wouldn't you like that to be your description? i got to be honest, I'm human enough that I wouldn't mind if that's the way I was eternally described in God's Word. A champion named Matt Right? I don't know that a single syllable name sounds as good as Goliath. Because I don't want to have Goliath's outcome. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. This is somewhere scholars argue and differ, somewhere between roughly seven and a half to nine and a half feet tall. Pretty large. Like he wouldn't have stood out a ton in the modern NBA. But at a time in human history when the average man was between 5 feet and 5 feet 3 or 4 inches tall, this is a large mammal. Goliath comes out. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels, roughly 125 pounds. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin. Part of why... The author for Samuel wants you to understand this bronze technology and weaponry as Israel didn't yet have it. They didn't yet have it. And a bronze javelin. Don't think a spear that you throw, right? Don't think cross and field. But think of a, a long curved sword with a long handle that they would use for close-in hand-to-hand combat. Was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. And it's iron point, and Israel was a long way from iron technology. Weighed 600 shekels, about 15 pounds, just the head of the spear. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Can you imagine a worse job in the ancient world? 
I mean, you've got a king's taste tester, which I would not apply for. And then you've got a shield bearer whose entire job is to get killed before whoever it is that they're bearing the shield on behalf of. I'm not putting in for that one. So Goliath goes out and he appears invincible. Are you picking up on a theme here as we're following the people of God throughout redemptive history? That when, when they're moving through God's kingdom work and when they're on their way despite themselves to being God's kingdom people, they continually run into geographical boundaries, circumstances, and people that seem invincible. Friends, God intends it to be this way. If you and I as Christ church aren't engaging in things that cause us to get on our knees and say, God, if you're not with us, this is going to fail, then we're just too boring. We are not following where Jesus always leads his people. Goliath seems invincible. And some of you this morning, you're facing things in your life, individually, that seem insurmountable. We talked about this last week as we looked at Judges, and the week before as we looked at crossing the Jordan River. They seem invincible. But I'll just remind you what I said last week. If the resurrection is possible, all things are possible. If Jesus can walk out the other side of death and sit and eat with his disciples, everything else is kids' play for God. But the people of God are paralyzed by fear. And we still see that in churches today. We still see little segments of a church here or there that are paralyzed by fear. We can't do that. We don't have enough to accomplish that. What if this happens? But the testimony of God's word over and over and over, and the entire witness of the history of the church, is that again and again and again, God does the seemingly impossible through his people as they engage in his kingdom purposes and work. But the Israelites look at him, and they're filled with fear. They're filled with fear. Look at verse 11. Um, Goliath comes out and he taunts them. And verse 11 says, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Something hit me this week as I was preparing uh, to preach on this passage that I've preached on before and studied devotionally, personally. Like, it's bad enough that the Israelites, the, the, the redeemed, saved, formed, called, covenant people of God, were terrified and dismayed, but Saul was. Their king. Their leader. Was dismayed and terrified. Forty days, the Philistine, verse 16 tells us, came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Won't you fight me? You want some of this? Let's go. And the Israelites stayed up on their slope in fear and shame. Look at verse 24. The, they kind of reached the bottom of the pit circling the drain here. Verse 24, whenever the Israelites saw the man, that is Goliath, they fled from him in great fear. They fled from him in great fear. Well, enter the story a young man named David. Young man named David. His brothers were in the Israelite army. 
but he was too young. You could enlist or more likely be drafted into the army of Israel at 20. It's very likely that David was mid to, to late teens, possibly 15, 16, 17 in there. Safe enough that they didn't, or, or young enough, I guess, that, and, and safe enough in age that they didn't consider him for military service. But his dad was sending him back and forth from tending the sheep from his shepherding duties to, to running food to his brothers in the army and checking on them there. And so David comes in, he sees this scene. He sees his fellow countrymen, the people of God, the nation of God, his own brothers cowering at big mouth Goliath. In verse 26, David asked the men standing near him during one of his food runs, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? I like that. I think maybe David was an entrepreneur. He's like, I wonder if I can get a leg up. What's, what's going to happen? And then he says this, this taunting kind of question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David noticed something here that the big and the strong and the influential didn't. David understood something at a deeper level, a theological level, that the people of God, the army of God there gathered, seemed to miss. He understood that the battle belonged to the Lord. The battle belonged to the Lord. He understood that the Philistines weren't just opposing Israel, they were opposing the God of Israel. They were spitting ultimately in his face, not in their faces. And David saw this intuitively, instantly. He understood that there is an apparent external reality here, that there's one army standing in opposition of another one, and the other one is much stronger and much more advanced in weaponry. And that there's a giant out here who's larger by a good bit than anyone that Israel could muster to the field of battle. But he also understood that there was an internal, unseen spiritual reality going on. That's what he means, if you'll notice him say, the uncircumcised Philistine. This uncircumcised Philistine. The implication there is that perhaps there had been some Philistines who'd been captured by Yahweh's glory and been circumcised. And though they were Philistines by birth, they by uh, rebirth into the people of God through circumcision were now part of the nation of Israel. But David, by saying this uncircumcised Philistine, is saying this man stands outside of the people of God, outside of the will of God, outside of the nation of God. And everybody's standing around paralyzed in fear because of him? Anybody ever notice that teenagers can come up with things that other people miss? It's always been so. It's always been so. Now, look down at verse 32. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now just imagine if we could paint a, a picture here. Right? Of several SEAL teams standing around, a company of Rangers, <laughs> one or two Marines. Um, right? But you've got America's elite standing around there, and then you've got a teenager who comes in, is like, I got this, boys. I know you're all nervous. You're getting geared up, checking your optics and your weapons. I got this. A little 15 year old playing Fortnite on a cell phone. This is the picture of what's going on here. He's like, hold on, I got this. I encountered something just like this on Xbox last night. 
David steps up. Look at Saul's reply, verse 33. You're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. Can I tell you something? In the kingdom of God, there's a difference between being a young man and being only a young man. David, Saul's about to find out, is not only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. David's reply, verse 36, says, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine, I get such a kick out of David's replies here. He has absolutely no respect for Goliath. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he, now listen here, don't miss this, because he has defied the armies of the living God. David doesn't say he's going to be like a lion or a lamb because I'm awesome, because I'm powerful, because I'm the greatest, because I'm one of the varsity shepherd boys. I can shepherd better than anybody else. I'm a first-string shepherd. He says he's going down because he's defying the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the pawn of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Question, who does David see as the hero of the story already? God. God. David brought a few things to the field here that the rest of the Israelite army didn't. The first is a God-centered attitude. David's got a God-centered attitude. And we're finding right now that it's beginning to make all the difference because it's reshaping the way in which he sees what's in front of him. He's looking at the circumstances through the lens of God, not viewing God through the lens of the circumstances in front of him. Now, Saul says, you know what? Maybe you're just the man, right? I'm going to keep eating my figs and I'm going to hang out in my tent. You go out there. Here, here's my armor. And David says, I can't wear your stuff. It's too big for me. Can I just tell you this? When you get into the fight of your life, the only thing that you're going to bring into that is your relationship with God. You can't bring someone else's prayer life into it. You can't bring someone else's years of committed devotional study of Scripture into that. You can't bring someone else's faith into that. You've only got your armor. And David says, your stuff doesn't fit me. I'm me. I'm not you. Verse 39, he says, I can't go out in those things. So he took them off. Verse 40, then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones. Remember, there's a wadi down there in the valley. Still there, you can see it today. Lots of rocks that the water had run over from the stream. Put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Now, we should have some pictures up here. These are not little bitty rocks. Sling stones, which were actually common weapons in the ancient world were typically the size of tennis or baseballs. And when slung by people trained to use them or accustomed to using them, could easily hit speeds of 70 miles an hour. And have you ever been hit while uh, at the plate batting in baseball? I have broken bones. Uh, there's something that will wake you up about getting hit with a baseball in a place where there's not a lot of meat between the bone and the skin. All right? He picks up these stones. These are uh, in uh, uh, an example, an exhibit in the British Museum in London there from the ancient world, the Lachish exhibit. But they're big stones. 
They're big stones. And part of what we're seeing here is that David doesn't just bring to this fight a God-centered attitude, but he brings a trust. He brings a trust in God-centered means. He says, look, I'm not going to use your armor, and I'm not going to use the human-fashioned weapons. I'm going to go into this fight with that which God has fashioned. God's formed the stones in this creek bed. They're all I need. I don't need man's weapons. He trusts not only in God, but in the means of God. Look at verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that this was little more than a boy. Glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He despised him. Verse 43. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? He's like, what is this? What is it? Get out of my way. You guys aren't taking me serious. I don't want this child out here. I get no honor from that. I'm a warrior. I want to go up against a warrior. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, by his Philistine gods, his pagan gods. Come here. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Any of you seen an old George C. Scott movie called Patton? Okay, there we got some nods. I'm figuring out where I am. All right, yeah, Patton, George C. Scott, I mean, just a, a really remarkable movie. One of my favorite scenes, Patton's army enters into the fight in North Africa, uh, and he finds that Rommel's army is on the move, and he gets his army on the move to intercept Rommel's army, and they defeat them. And Patton was thrilled because he knew Rommel was the best that Hitler had to throw at him, and he defeated him. And one of his runners comes and lets him know later that, hey, Rommel was actually back in Germany, that he'd been flown back for some health stuff so he could recover. And Patton's whole demeanor changes. He's so discouraged, the guy says, well, he's Hitler's favorite general. He had to bring him back, and Patton says, I'm my favorite general, and I don't like to hear I'm up against some second stringer then I lose honor. This is a picture of what's going on here. Goliath doesn't want to be up against some second stringer. No true warrior, no true athlete, no true competitor ever wants to be up against somebody that you don't consider a worthy opponent. But verse 45, we discover not only does David bring to this scenario a God-centered attitude and a trust in God-centered means, but he brings or rather has produced by those things a God-centered confidence. Look at verse 45. David, who is likely close to half of the height of Goliath. No armor. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. My man, David's confidence. I'm not just going to strike you down. I'm going to cut your head off when I'm done. Right? That's a guy you can get behind. I want a jersey that says just simply one on the back, David. Right? I'm going to strike you down and cut your head off. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds. He's like, you're just, I'm just getting started with you. Once I'm done with you as an appetizer, I'm going to move on to the main course. 
there's a certain bravado that comes with teenage years as well, right? And David's got it. But look at why he's got it. He says, I'll give the carcasses, in verse 46, of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. David understands that something far more theologically significant is taking place than David or, or than Goliath understands, or than the Israelite understands. What David knows is that the glory and the honor and the reputation of God is on the line here, and God will not be mocked. God's glory will reign and will be revealed and will be honored throughout his world. Verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Can I tell you one of the, one of the real dangers that we live with as followers of Jesus in the last superpower on earth, at least right now, one of the real dangers we live with is this constant temptation to place our faith in the power of our nation instead of the goodness and glory of our God. And I'll tell you, friends, that's sin. And it's a game we'll never win. Verse 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line. Don't you love David at this stage? He's like, I know you got to move slow. You're old, you're tall, you got a bunch of armor on. But I'm coming to meet you at high speed. He ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. I love this, right? He's not, he's not even got weapons in the chamber yet or, or, or ammo in the chamber. He's like, I haven't even chambered a magazine yet. He's like, I, I get a stone out when I get close there. His confidence is in his God and in the abilities that his God has given him. So he runs there, he reaches into his bag, verse 49, takes out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Verse 50 is meant to say, God did this. God did what was by human power impossible. Verse 51, David makes good on his word. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. With his own sword, David beheads him. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. If you continue to follow the story, the Israelites got all filled with courage now. And they're like, that's right, and they start chasing the Philistines once they're retreating. We've all got people like that in our lives, right? They're incredibly brave when the battle's done. But beforehand, they can't be found. They're like a blister showing up after the work is done. Here's how this story has usually been understood, often taught, and often preached. That if you have the faith of David, if you have the, the mindset of David, if you have the courage of David, you can face any giant in your life, and they're going to fall. But let me tell you this morning, Lost Mountain, this story is not ultimately about David. 
And David's very clear about that. This story is about God. It's about David's Savior and Deliverer. The very point of this passage, don't miss this, lean in here. The very point of this passage is that the Israelites could not face the giant themselves. The Israelites could not face the giant themselves. They needed a substitute. They needed someone who would stand in the gap between them and the giant that stood before them. And they didn't get a hardened, seasoned warrior. They got a weak shepherd boy instead. David triumphs through his weakness, through his youth. Through the fact that he wasn't a warrior. He couldn't even fit into Saul's armor. David triumphs through weakness. And his victory is imputed to his people. David's victory is applied to his people. The story of David is the story of Jesus. David and Goliath is a picture of the gospel in the Old Testament. David is a a forerunner, a precursor, an image pointing us toward the Savior. And as as the band makes their way back up here, I don't want you to miss the fact that it's Jesus who faced the ultimate giants of sin and death. In your place and mine. Yet he triumphed. And he triumphed not as a trained warrior, but as a suffering servant. And now his victory is our victory. His victory is your victory. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. You're not worthy of it. Yet God, in his grace and his mercy, applies the victory of Jesus to you. And says his victory on the cross is now your victory. His resurrection is your resurrection. His righteousness is. I impart to you, not that you are righteous, but that I view you as such through the righteousness of my Son. Tim Keller says it this way, Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Lost Mountain, that's what the story of David Goliath is about. It's not about the faith that you can muster up It's about how you head into situations and circumstances in your life. Admitting that you can't do what only Jesus can do. We got one king, one deliverer, one savior, and it's Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. Father God, wherever our hearts are, are drifting from you this morning, I pray that you'd lead us back. God, wherever we are tempted to put our affections and our desires in something or someone other than you for ultimate satisfaction, I pray that you'd help us understand the fruitlessness of that. God, remind us that you are the one our heart hungers for. It's not about who we are and what we do or what we bring to the table, God. God, you welcome us with open arms. 
because of what your son has done. And Lord, I pray if there's any across this room this morning, and there certainly are, who've never seen your beauty and your glory and your goodness for what they are, God, who've never seen you for who you are, and have never understood your radical, self-emptying love for them through Jesus Christ, that they'd see that this morning. God, maybe for the first time they'd say, God, I want you, I need you, and I place my trust in you. For the first time today, I belong to you. God, that's my prayer in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.